and welcome to the Computomics podcast. Our guest today is a weed geneticist. His career stops include various at the University of Liverpool. He was the research lead for the Institute of Integrative Biology there, the co-director at the Center of Genomic Research and the academic lead of the Liverpool Gene Mill. And today he heads the plant genomics at Earlham Institute. Welcome to the Computomics podcast, Anthony Hall. Hi. So just should I start off by telling you a bit about the Earlham Institute? Oh, yes, please uh, do tell us. Yeah, so the Earlham Institute uh, is it's a BBSRC funded institute. So the BBSRC is uh, one of the UK's big uh, research funders. So and it, it makes it it's a nice place to work because, uh, you know, if you're working in a university, you've got the pressure of teaching, admin and and research, whereas an institute like the Earlham, we, we just do research. We just focus on research. So it's, so it's a really uh, it's a nice place to work. And I think uh, and kind of our area of expertise or kind of where we fit in is at that kind of data science and technology development. So really focused around uh, sequencing and uh, interpreting uh, genomic data, but also we're interested in uh, synthetic biology as well and how we can uh, use hypotheses that we develop from looking at our uh, genomic data uh, to uh, test specific ideas using synthetic biology approaches. But it's really that data science and the technology that generates that data that we're really interested in. And that's kind of our, our unique point uh, where, where we fit within the scientific ecosystem. And I think what's really nice about the Earlham is we, we've got that, we generate the data, we have the sequencing machines that generate the data and we analyze it. And, and I think that that working together with the, the technology and the, the, the data puts us in quite, quite a unique position. Can you elaborate a little more on that? How does this closeness help you or what? How do you think this impacts your, your work having both under one roof? Right. So sequencing technology is moving at an incredible speed. So, I mean, if we if we just look a little back in history. So uh, it, before before the start of the 21st century, we had the first eukaryotic genomes and prokaryotic genomes. And then in 2000, we had the human genome. And then there was huge technology leaps in uh, sequencing. So it suddenly became in around about 2005 high throughput. So before you used to have a warehouse of machines slowly generating sequence and it was replaced by just one machine the size of a washing machine so this <laughs> kind of step change in uh, high throughput sequencing and that moved us away from thinking about uh, human genomes or very small microbial genomes to we could start to generate uh, genomes for some of the the key model organisms and then uh, then after the model organisms we came we started generating uh, agricultural genomes. So uh, pigs, cows, tomatoes, uh, rice. And then as the technology advanced further, we started to go for some of the, the bigger genomes. So like uh, barley uh, and, and wheat. So, so wheat is probably one, one of the, the, the biggest and most challenging genomes that we've played with so far. So compared to a human genome, it's five times the size of a human genome. And whereas the genome is just got, the human genome just has uh, 
well, uh, two genomes. So it's a diploid, so it has two genomes in there. Uh, Wheat's hexaploid, so it actually has six genomes. So, so and though, though each of those genomes is closely related. So it's a real puzzle to start to pick it about and take the sequence data you generate and assemble it into genomes. And that's really been the, the drive of my research at, at the Earlham is, uh, is uh, sequencing the genomes, but not just sequencing them, uh, using them to understand uh, some of the biology that's going on as well. I'd like to explore both the data wave that, that you're writing and how you're doing that exactly, and then also the research results. Maybe since you've just explained how the technology has changed in leaps and bounds to a washing machine size sequencing um, a machine basically that spits out more data than the warehouse used to spit out. Um, how are you, and I'm, I'm quoting you here from one of your presentations, how do you surf the wave of data that's coming along? Yeah, how, I mean, how can we envision that? Yeah, it's kind of getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> the wave's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, so, so I, I mean, I, just, just to go back and talk about the, the, the data and the, the last step of the technology that w would take us to where we are now. So, so I said the washing machine. So there's two things that happened over the last three years and two technologies that have suddenly become, uh, you know, they've, they've been developed, but they're now really deployable and starting to have a real impact on our ability to assemble complex genomes. And one of those is the, the, the uh, nanopore technology. So this generates ultra long reads that we can use to start to stitch together our genomes. And, and the, the nanopore, I said about washing machine size. So a nanopore is about slightly as big as a mobile phone. So, so we've gone. We're getting smaller and smaller. From warehouse to washing machine to mm -hmm. uh, mobile phone, and then the other big technology, which is still at the washing machine size, but it generates uh, long reads. So this is the the Pack Bio, uh, and what it does is it generates these hi-fi reads, so really accurate uh, long reads. So uh, 20, 20 kilobases in size, so long reads. And what you're doing is. Uh, the, the the washing machine size machine previously was generating these really short reads. And now we've got these longer reads. It's basically, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. So previously with all of these little short reads, you were trying to make a jigsaw with millions and millions of pieces. But uh, as we've getting uh, longer reads, the, the, the jigsaw is getting bigger pieces. And we all know that bigger pieces it's easier to stitch together a jigsaw so so the, the problem the the challenge of trying to assemble the genomes is 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 almost almost a, a solved problem <laughs> with it being a solved problem means and and now kind of the quite cheap it means we're getting loads and loads of these uh, uh genomes so so rather than i mean i said earlier that we got we're getting uh you know, we got to a point where we could uh, now uh, assemble wheat genomes, right? So, so assemble one wheat genome, but it's not just one. We're now getting multiple wheat genomes, uh, but with the, with this new technology, really as higher quality or better than the, the 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 single wheat genome we originally had. So the problem is, you're getting all of these. How can you use them? And and I, I think that the 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 research community. Uh, and uh, both in the public and private sector, we're at this position where they, they'd just been able to deal with a, a, a whole reference genome. It was transforming the way they developed their breeding programs or developed markers or uh, could understand the, the genes underlying some of their key traits. And then suddenly you give them another uh, 16 genomes and they've just got 
to understanding what they did with one and now they've got 16. So, and they know they need to be able to use them because they know their competitors are thinking about how they're going to use this data. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a, now a real challenge to think about how you can build the tools that allow uh, researchers, so breeders and uh, uh, crop scientists in, in the public and private sector. So how they can use this data, how can we build the tools for allow them to explore that data and uh, make discoveries. So it's a, it's, they need the tools, uh, they need the expertise. So, so uh, scientists that are able to deal with these data sets uh, and the capacity, the, the number of scientists to be able to do it. So I have a real key problem at the moment, which is, uh, so I have uh, postdocs in my group that we, we spend loads of time learning how to deal with this data. And along comes a agri-biotech company or <laughs> a small startup or, uh, or a computer science company. Uh, uh, Nick's, well, doesn't Nick them. They, they, move, they move forward <laughs> into really good careers within, within that. So, so we are we're generating that capacity that allows us to, uh, yeah, so we are generating capacity. We need to do it more because there's a real, a real space here that we need to have the, the tools, capacity and expertise to be able to deal with it and make discoveries. What would maybe, uh, thinking of this, this problem of, of grand theft, not grand theft auto, but grand theft postdoc <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that, you're, that you're suffering from, um, do you see a way where maybe AI technology can help you deal with that? Because, I mean, obviously I'm asking because uh, it's a Computomics podcast. Um, Computomics does a lot of, um, has a lot of products that, that work with AI technology, but just generally speaking, lots of data, processing lots of data, that's where AI uh, becomes interesting. Is that something you're working with currently or where, where do you see possible applications? I guess there's where we see it and, and what we're doing at the moment. So, so I think there's a real uh, interest in how you, when you have lots of these genomes, how you uh, link these uh, complex data sets with uh, phenotypic variations, so uh, uh, changes in the field and how you can bring those two together. So you've got the pattern of the genome and then you've got the, the structure of the plant or, or, or the trait that you're looking at and how you bring those two together. And, and I think it's been an area of uh, statistics, but I think there's a real possibility to start to add AI there. And, it, and it's a real complex problem. So you've got the, the genome that's fixed, you've got the phenotype, but you've also got things like the way you manage that crop, and you've got uh, the environment, the soil. So it, it, mm. trying to integrate all those data sets sounds like a, a real AI problem. But I mean, that's not something that, that my group are uh, really pursuing, but I know that that's a big question being asked in kind of the agricultural AI sector. And I think actually, uh, the, the bits of where we have been working with AI, the, 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 the first step as, as kind of a, as a, a wheat geneticist or, or wheat genomics or, or crop genomics person is to think about the data sets that you generate and making sure that they are computer readable. So a computer can come in and use that to, to then uh, generate uh, algorithms uh, and, and, and use AI to identify the patterns. So I think there's a, there's a real power in making sure that the data we generate is what we call AI ready, mm -hmm. so, so it feed in. And then there's also to think about when you are generating data sets, could you generate the perfect data set 
that any uh, machine learning AI expert will go, yes, that's really exciting. <laughs> and they'll, they'll come and they'll start analyzing your data and developing algorithms on your data set. So actually they're making and developing the algorithms that then you can use to make the biological discovery you want. So I think, think that that's quite a challenge. And that's something that we're thinking about in some of uh, the, the new proposals that we're writing is to, is to build data sets that we can uh, engage with the AI community to start to use to address specific questions that we're interested in. So that's one way of uh, AI. But we are, we are as, a, as a group, we are using AI, but uh, in, in something quite, quite different. So we're really interested. So, so having a genome is, is interesting. But there's there's a whole other levels of complexity. So a genome just provides the code. What you want to add on is a models of where the genes are. So, so they're the bit that kind of uh, drives the biology. But also you want to understand how those genes are regulated. So in a genome, you've got something called the, uh, the promoter or the regulatory region. And understanding how that, that regulatory region uh, drives expression of that gene. I think it's a real challenge. And that's something we are using AI for, to try and see if we can identify patterns within those regulatory regions that can then uh, be used to predict how a gene is expressed. And, and that allows us to start to kind of uh, decode this part of the genome that is currently not accessible. And, and, and it's really, really important to start to understand that, that, that region, that, that coding region, that non-coding region. Because if you go and look at uh, data, for example, in maize, around 40% of the uh, inheritable uh, uh, genetics within the driving traits is in this non-coding region. So actually, if you can understand the impact of, of a mutation in the non-coding region, then, then you, can, you can work out whether you, that's the cause, that's the region, reason why we're seeing that, that phenotype. At the moment, it's, it's more straightforward if it's a coding region, because you know, well, that mutation causes an amino acid to change and, and, and that's not an AI problem. That's a simple biology uh, problem. But understanding that regulatory region, there's a real need to develop tools around that. I mean, with 40%, that's a sizable, uh, a sizable part of, of the, the area that, that is what you term non-coding. Non so I, I can totally see that where um, AI might help. Yeah. Um, you said you don't work with AI that much, but yeah. then you you proceeded to to name quite a few um, key areas where you where you work with AI. Um, can you share a couple of the research results that you have gotten in that research? Uh, not necessarily just with AI, but but overall. Yeah, yeah. So we have a we. Oh, we I'll talk about the AI stuff we've been doing. So we had a paper in uh, PNES last year, uh, and that was in collaboration with uh, IBM. So, and actually it was in collaboration with Laura Gardner, so she was the lead author on the paper, uh, but it was a collaboration between IBM and my group. And uh, so Laura was previously a PhD student, then a postdoc in my group, and then moved to IBM. Uh, so, so, so I would say they, they nicked it, they didn't nick it. She, she's, <laughs> she's, on, she's, on, uh, she's on a similar salary to me now. <laughs> so it was a good move for her, a really good career move for her. Uh, so, so in that paper, what we what we did is uh, we developed uh, methods for uh, using data to identify uh, biomarkers that allowed us to uh, 
so one of the data sets you generate is uh, gene expression data. And uh, what we wanted to do was use this gene expression data to uh, identify uh, whether we could use gene expression data to identify a complex trait. So, so we're one of the things that we're interested in, so I'm interested in wheat genomics, we're also interested in biology, a biological process, and that's the circadian clock, so how plants tell the time. So this is an important agricultural trait, as, uh, but it's really difficult to measure in the field because basically you to to measure it you have to be able to uh, assay the plants every two hours for 48 hours under constant light you mm. don't get those conditions in the field so 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 what we what we did is we we developed a a, a, a machine learning algorithm that allowed you to predict the internal time from just a single uh, transcript uh, transcript time point uh, so so we, so so basically uh, rather than having to sample over 48 hours you just take a simple single uh, tr a single uh, transcriptomic time point uh, and it'll tell you exactly what the internal time of the clock was doing so in that way you can see whether the internal clock whether it's in sync with the external light dark cycle or whether there's a dysynchrony so it's a, it's a so it's a way of rather than generating these huge data sets taking just uh, one time point and, and measuring this complex trait and that's incredibly valuable because now you can go back to all of the data that already exists so loads of transcriptomic data from uh, lots of different conditions take our set of biomarkers and go and ask what time of day did it think that plant was growing at so, so that that's a that's that that becomes incredibly uh, incredibly useful. And what we did, well, there's one kind of cool experiment we did was uh, so we thought this is brilliant. The, uh, there's there's an Arabidopsis uh, project called the 1001 Genome Project where they sequenced the 1001 uh, Arabidopsis genomes. They also generated transcriptomic data for 600 of those plants. So we can go in use our biomarkers and find out what time of day their internal clock thought it was. Mm -hmm. And we thought this is brilliant because we can do that. We've got the, the genetic data, we can measure this complex trait, and then we can do a, a genome-wide association study and identify uh, marker trait associations with, with, with our new biomarker set. But it turns out that the, the, the group uh, weren't that careful with how they designed their experiments. And when we analyzed the data, we worked out that the technician came in at nine o'clock every morning and left at four o'clock. So, so, so we didn't get, uh, we, 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 we could work out what time of day the experiments were taken, but we couldn't work out, we couldn't use it to see whether there's a dyssynchrony between the internal and external clock because the external time wasn't recorded. And I guess kind of the take home from this is, you know, make sure your data is uh, you record everything with your data. If they would have said exactly what time of day they were harvested, we could have used the, that data. Mm -hmm. uh, so luckily, there's there's another group uh, led by a guy called Magnus Norberg, and he was working on a similar collection, uh, a sub-collection of the 1001 Genome Project. And he actually did record exactly what time he, he uh, measured uh, he, he took his samples, uh, so a specific time in the morning. So we've gone on and we're doing that analysis now and using a genome-wide association to identify uh, the, the, the genes uh, driving the variation in this trait. So that's an example of how we've used machine learning to look at a complex trait. 
but, but and that, that was very focused on Arabidopsis. But we can now start to move that into into crops now. So use the same process to develop markers in wheat, and then we can then take that into the field and see whether different field conditions or environments uh, change the time of the clock just using single uh, transcriptomic measurements. And the, the kind of the, the same process, you can start to think, well, actually, there's the clock. We can then go and start to look at other uh, complex traits beyond just the circadian clock. So you develop a set of biomarkers. And this isn't really that clever. It's what they're doing in uh, in medicine already. So so quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, startup companies are developing uh, biomarkers for uh, yeah, you know uh, ability to uh, recover from cancer and things like that, uh, or, or or whether you've got cancer or not, or whether you've got this disease or that disease. So by taking single transcriptomic data sets, they can identify biomarkers within that and uh, using machine learning, and then uh, using that they can kind of identify. Uh, phenotypes or traits or diseases within humans. So it's the same idea, but then translated it into uh, ag the agri-tech sector. Uh, I mean, that's amazing. I think uh, in what you've just explained, how the you are able to use machine learning to develop methods to decrease the data you have to deal with and then find complex markers or, or complex um, traits uh, and identify them and even to, I mean, I'm also interested in this meta level of, of, of going back to this idea of making, creating data sets that can actually be used for, um, that are AI ready, that you can use for further analysis. And if you fail to record the time that you're actually, um, that you're actually doing the work, then that might actually be almost like a dead end street um, as far as further analysis is concerned. So there's almost the two results from that experiment. You were just you just described. Yeah, and it really shows you the power of really being careful about how you design your experiments and explain your experimental data. Because if you're careful about doing that, it means that it becomes reusable. And, uh, you know, you've spent a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort doing that generating that data set in the first place so why not make it as uh, reusable as possible because uh, ultimately as scientists we want our work to have impact and if our data sets can have a life beyond the experiments that we designed for that's absolutely fantastic I mean I guess that's almost my lab motto is we kind of uh, we, we like to use other people's data sets to ask questions that they didn't design their experiments to ask <laughs> that, that's kind of that's kind of where, where, where we go Mm -hmm. and, and but again, you would say you are asking people please don't just capture the data capture the metadata is yeah, that would that be yeah. a fair way to yeah. to summarize yeah. that yeah yeah and also also and, and there's that value of you know thinking how your data might be used in the future so going and talking with uh going and having a chat with people that are doing machine learning and uh and thinking about how they might like you to design their the, your experiment so it, it will have maximum impact, I think it is, is incredibly valuable. I think so many times, you know, we see data that we think is perfect and then that they're just missing some key component that means it, it, it's, it's not useful. Mm -hmm. So maybe I could talk a bit about... Um, I guess I guess the other thing that uh, when we've talked a bit about AI and a bit about uh, how we're using that to look at genomes, I mean, I guess the other thing is that uh, some of the stuff that the, the having multiple genomes is starting to reveal that we have no idea about. 
So I could maybe talk a bit about that. So please, yeah. So so one of the things I, I'm a wheat geneticist and a wheat genomics uh, researcher. So one of the things that we kind of uh, thought was, you know, wheat is a complex genome, but but there's there's arguments about when it became a hexaploid. So I, I think there's some papers say 1.5 million. There's some say 10,000 years. So so the, so, but it went through a bottleneck, a genetic bottleneck, because it became a, a hexaploid that only happened maybe once. Uh, so, so the fact that it came through a genetic bottleneck means there's not, that you would expect there not to be that much variation, but yet there's a lot of phenotypic variation in wheat. So, so that's kind of been one of the things, you know, how, how do we, why does it have so much uh, genetic variation? And, and I think that's one of the things that having uh, full high quality genomes, not just from a single reference, but from multiple references is, is revealing. So, so what's happened, what we think that has been happening is, so you, when you go and have a look at a wheat field now, you'll see it and, it and it's all perfect and everything looks the same, but that, that's a modern wheat field, not, not an ancient wheat field. So, so, you know, 100, 150 years ago, the way wheat would have been grown would have been as, as what we call kind of a hybrid swarm so not just bread wheat but a whole series of closely related grasses and then you'd you'd run your scythe across it harvest, mm -hmm. harvest your wheat uh, and then take to the mill and grind it and then but uh, you would keep some of that grain and plant it the next year and that's the, that's the, that's the way that it kind of works so you'd always have this 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 a hybrid swarm of a mixture of different grasses. So what's been happening over since the hybridization event, you know, maybe uh, tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago, is that you've been getting uh, hybridization between these wild relatives. So actually the, the, the wheat genome is a mosaic and that's what we've kind of found by generating these uh, uh, genome assemblies is that, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's the bread wheat genome, but actually there's lots of integrations of uh, these uh, wild relative bits of DNA all over the genome. And, and that's that, that integration is giving you the variation or at least some of the variation that we see with, within wheat. And, and it, it is controlling some really important traits. So we have a paper that's currently on uh, BioArchive that's under review, and it's a collaboration between uh, ourselves and CIMIT. So CIMIT's the International uh, Wheat and Maize Research Centre in Mexico. And uh, we did a, a, a genome-wide association study looking at uh, heat tolerance. Uh, so we basically grew our plants under optimal, grew a panel under optimal conditions and then grew a panel uh, that we planted late. So it became heat stressed and we identified uh, a, a number of uh, marker traits that actually increased yield by 56% under heat stress. So a huge increase. Wow. Right, 56%. 56% compared to with or without the, the alleles. So it's a really big impact. And so we, we, we got it down to a loci on a, one of the loci on 6, 6D, so one of the chromosomes of wheat. And then uh, because now we've got the wheat genome and we've got uh, genomes from uh, cross uh, wheat relatives, we're able to identify that actually where the, the marker lay was in where there'd been an integration with a, a wild genome called Tauchi. So we could see that actually the, the, the thing that was giving the heat tolerance 
wasn't the bread wheat, but it was this integration of this Taoshi region. And we could we could look through all of the lines and all of the lines that had this tolerance had this Taoshi bit. And you could then also look at those lines and sort of so see where the break point between wheat and Taoshi was in all of those lines and slowly decrease the, the, the region where we thought the gene was. And we're now down to uh, 1.6 megabases, right? So, so there's still a lot, uh, you know, 1.6 million base pairs. But if you think that the wheat genome is 16 billion base pairs <laughs> in size, they were pretty close to identifying the gene. And what we can do is we can go and reconstruct exactly what that interval looks like because we've got the Tauchi uh, sequence now and we can see that there's some uh, some uh, novel recombinations between genes going there's some uh, genes that have uh, uh, point mutations that are likely to affect uh, the function of some of those proteins so we've got a whole set of candidate genes we can now go and look at and, and this is a really important trait and where we're going with that now is we're uh, looking to see whether Okay, so it has this effect in Mexico. So what happens when you uh, uh, run climate scenarios based on global warming? So could this could this uh, marker trait be important for not just Mexican wheat varieties, but European wheat varieties? And will it help to mitigate the effects of climate change? So, so that's what we're doing at the moment, trying to introduce that into European uh, lines and see whether it, it will be useful for uh for, for breeding programs mm-hmm. but but it's all been driven by yeah by some elegant physiology and uh, field phenotyping but also the the genomics has allowed us to real really nail down the reason that it's actually a wild relative integration that's the responsible for it and i think as we start to unpick the complexities of the wheat genome that you getting from these data sets, you're seeing a lot more, well, we are seeing a lot more of these integration events all around the genome. And these are likely to be linked with uh, a lot of interesting traits to do with uh, biotic, so so uh, resistance to various pathogens and abiotic stress, so things like heat and drought. So there's a lot of useful variation that's going to be incredibly powerful going forward. And we've now got the tools to start to uncover, uncover it. So it, it's all about Right, we've now got multiple genomes. We need the tools to we need the tools for uh, the the breeders to be able to use this data to to do the kind of experiments we've just done with the cement material. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so we're at that we're at that point where yeah we need to put in hands the expertise and the tools for them to be able to analyze it, and that that's data science and uh, genome analysis rather than AI. But it's but you know as we start to we can do this by hand by or not by hand but by by computers but but as the data sets become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger there's no way we can do that we're going to have to think about applying uh, ai approaches to start to unpick some of these complexities i mean that's that's amazing uh those kinds of results but also the the outlook you just sketch of being able to identify these these key markers and um especially with looking at climate change, it's like that we're we're going to need it sooner rather than later. Um, so, is that the the what you're working on right now um, to to model these climate scenarios with um, European wheat lines? 
that, so it's a it's a it's a grant proposal that we submitted two weeks ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> Very fresh off the press. <laughs> so so, uh, but yeah, I mean, we've been talking about the idea, and it's a collaboration with uh, the University of Nottingham and uh, with Simit and with uh, the University of Bristol. So the University in Bristol have got a lot of expertise in modelling uh, kind of future climate scenarios. So so basically, we're we're providing the genetics and the genomics component of it nottingham are the the physiologists uh, and uh, run these cl- uh, carefully climate controlled cabinets so you can run that a, a growth cabinet to mimic exactly what the the climate's going to be in uh, 2050 or 2080 and then we can now then put in our plant material and see whether these markers are able to cope with uh, these uh, increase in temperature or or so, so increase in temperature, but, but you're also going to have these, uh, what we call uh, increase in these se- severe weather events as well. So we can program those within within the cabinet as well. So you suddenly get a uh, real high heat wave for, for, you know, a week or so. And uh, would, the, would the markers help us, uh, the traits we've identified help us with, with those kind of scenarios as well? That's that's very exciting. If um, if someone would like to to follow up on on everything they they heard uh, from what you're working on, where can they find your your work or or specifically what your group does? Yeah. So so if they they want to find out, I mean, the easiest way is to just just Google the Earlham Institute, <laughs> Anthony Hall Earlham Institute, and they will they will they will find me. That's the easiest way. And on that site, there's email addresses and things as well. And we're always looking for we're always looking for talent. So, <laughs> so that's uh, given way. given the grand grand theft. I'm just going to keep calling grand theft postdoc. I, I've kind of fallen in love with that term now. So um, you're looking for new talent. Um, can you maybe if if someone's listening right now that that is interested in that field, what would you like to tell them? Yeah, they should get in touch. We can discuss stuff. And we, what we're kind of keen to do is we're, we're really happy to take people that have some computational biology skills, but we're happy to help them develop those. So, so, so they too can get a job at IBM and advise me about that. I do. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, I, I, I do think that there's some really interesting science in this area going on at the moment. Uh, but also, I think uh, you know, if I was if I was you know 25 now, uh, I, I think it, it's an area where you could come develop some skills, and then your career would be sorted. You know, I think that there's a real demand. For, for talent in this kind of computational area, so. Well, that, and I think uh, specifically uh, dealing with with those talents in that in that field of you know it, it's basically about trying to eliminate world hunger, um, even with the climate change uh, that's upon us already, and that will probably just keep getting worse. Um, so it's something where your your work will be quite impactful, regardless of whether. <laughs> They they keep working with you or decide to to move their talents uh, to you know to to the industry maybe but um, it's definitely something where where uh, any research results or any advancements that um, would be produced as far as breeding plant biology is concerned um, would really impact all of us every day almost yeah that's an exciting outlook. Um, well, Anthony, thank you so much for for taking time out of your day to to tell us um, about the research you've been doing. I thought it was really exciting uh, to learn uh, 
especially with the example you you gave with this experiment of um, the heat exposure, the heat stress, uh, 56% increase, and how being able to identify that that Tao Shai, I think you said Tao Shai, yes. Tao Shai. Tao Shai. Yeah, how, but how basically that 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 wild piece of wild uh, relative DNA uh, within the genome really um, was responsible for that, and how the different data sets helped you identify that. I think that was a really great um, example to to illustrate what you explained before and how the data sets kind of work together and what we need, um, but also how complex it is uh, to, to now develop tools and have enough people and the expertise to really uh, move that basically to, to implementation on the, on the breeder side. So that's definitely something we, uh, we'd like to keep an eye on. Um, and for our listeners out there, um, Anthony said you can just Google it, but also we will be putting up a link in the notes on our site, computomics.com. So um, you can explore that a little more. Once again, Anthony, thank you for your time. And to everyone else, hope to have you back next time for the computomics.com podcast. Mm -hmm.